Thank you, Norm. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, let's, let's pray here. God, we have heard and sung and tasted of your goodness to us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for this communion meal that we celebrate. Christ has died for us. Christ is risen and Christ will come again. We know that what Christ has called to us to is not easy. He himself suffered, um, but he rose. And we know that through him, our sins are put to death and laid on him. And he has given us a commission to go and preach, um, making disciples of all nations. And so I pray that you would help us by your word here today to be your disciples, to be those who love your word, who are changed by your spirit to be like your son and to long for his appearing more and more. I pray you would help me as I preach today uh, to do this well, to make your word clear that we might see that the Lord is good. I pray all these things in his name, amen. <clears throat> well, uh, good morning. Uh, I'm going to pose a question to you, and I think Ken has already alluded to this. Um, if you were talking to someone dear to you, and you thought maybe this is going to be the last time I'm going to talk to them, or talk to you, what would you say to them? What important piece of wisdom might you want to impart? So we're in our third sermon in our series in 2 Timothy here. It's Paul's last letter to Timothy that we have in Scripture uh, Paul expects that he's going to die soon, and he's waiting for his execution in Rome. And so at the end of the letter, Paul's going to request, Timothy, come visit me one last time. But the bulk of the letter is actually Paul telling Timothy what to do, because he doesn't know that he's actually guaranteed to see Timothy, that Timothy will make it all the way there. Um, and so I want us to consider the emotional weight that this letter has. I know for, for me, uh, I don't think Ken has done this, but I can say, oh, it's Paul's last letter. He cares for Timothy. He tells Timothy to do things. It's urgent. Like you can kind of say this all in an academic sense and, and not consider what, what is actually happening. What's the emotional stakes here? So um, if we look at uh, 2 Timothy, we saw in chapter 1, verse 2, that he called Timothy his beloved child. And then he reiterates that. He calls him his child again in our first verse of our text here today. Um, and he longs to see Timothy face to face. So there's this uh, desire to see him. But at the same time, what's going on in the churches is, is not really that rosy. Um, he says that uh, people in churches all across Asia have deserted him in chapter 1, verse 15. And then he brings up uh, throughout this letter a number of people who are opposing Timothy and the gospel in the area of Ephesus, uh, such as Hymenaeus and Alexander, who he had mentioned actually in 1 Timothy. He said, they've made shipwreck of their faith. And you can't make shipwreck of your faith unless you've made some profession of faith in the first place. So these are people who um, have made some profession, but they seem to be causing Paul continued pain as they're not showing signs of repentance as he had hoped for in 1 Timothy. And it, it, uh, 
if you kind of read all of 2 Timothy, it doesn't feel like things are a whole lot better in the Ephesian church since 1 Timothy is written, which is kind of a sobering thought. And then even more jarring, uh, Paul says a Demas, who is someone who pops up at the end of Colossians and uh, Philemon as someone that he commends, he says at the end of uh, 2 Timothy that uh, Demas has deserted him because he is in love with the present world. And there's people all around the church preaching false doctrines. So uh, there, there's, there is actual urgency and there's a lot of sadness as far as what is going on in this church. Um, at the same time, uh, the, the letters full of exhortations from Paul to Timothy to uh, continue to do what Paul has placed him there to do. Uh, we don't see it. Paul outrightly rebuking Timothy, saying, you know, you're, you're slacking, you're a bum. Why is this, you know, not, not working? Uh, he's not seeing that. Uh, he, there's some things where he might say that he's, he's warning him or he might be correcting him, but he's not beating him over the head. Um, uh, Paul does remind Timothy, though, to fan into flame the gift of God, which is likely the gift of teaching based on 1 Timothy 4, and he says that God has given us a spirit not of fear, um, but of power and love and self-control. Um, so it's, I think, reasonable, and Ken has also suggested this, that Timothy is um, perhaps experiencing discouragement or he's feeling timid or uh, tempted to back off or forsake what he's been commissioned to do. So this is really Paul coming and saying, Timothy, I love you, but you need to keep at it. Um, I might not see you again, and this is the most important thing you can be doing. And so Paul's whole letter tells Timothy what true teachers of God's truth are to do. And he contrasts those, this with those who are not true teachers more and more as we get into the rest of the letter. Um, we're going to be taking a break uh, after this Sunday. Uh, until January from this series. But in the meantime, I would encourage you to continue reading, uh, maybe listen to 2 Timothy. Uh, you can listen to it on audio Bible for, it's like 10 minutes. So it's not, it's not I've, uh, but I found it very helpful in preparing because sometimes I miss things. Sometimes I miss things when I'm reading them. Sometimes I miss things when I'm listening to them. But when I have both, um, it's very helpful. So I think it'd be something helpful to consider, um, and I think it'll help us really get into 2 Timothy um, as, we, as we pick it up. But uh, let's talk about our text here this morning. And so my main point here this morning is that God's true teachers have been entrusted with the gospel. And this demands, first, strength from Christ. So that's just looking at verse 1. And so... In, in chapter, uh, chapter 1, Paul tells Timothy a number of times, do not be ashamed of the gospel and do not be ashamed of Paul who is in prison. And he does this by saying, look how wonderful the gospel is. How could, how, why would, we, we, we shouldn't be ashamed. We should be excited to proclaim it. Um, 
And Paul's going to give and now a specific command to Timothy in verse 2, but this first verse here isn't just a throwaway, okay, uh, you know, let's just get to the command. Here's, here's something he's going to say. So Paul repeats in verse 1 that Timothy is his child. And I'll say these are words that I have a tendency to skim over. You know, he's just kind of saying, you then, my child. Okay, it's an affectionate thing he's saying, but they aren't actually throwaway words. They serve to remind Timothy of the great love, affection, and tenderness that Paul has for him. Um, maybe I don't gloss over these words like I used to because I have a son now who I love dearly. But I think the beauty of this is that Paul is speaking to Timothy who's not actually his biological child. He's speaking to someone who he has invested in a great deal of time, but he's not actually related to him. He's built this relationship through commonality and love in Christ. And so um, maybe you don't have the depth of relationship that you would want from a biological parent. Um, and so maybe that's, this is something harder to relate to. But I think the promise here is that the bond of Christ creates these sorts of relationships as people pour into one another. And that's something uh, we would hope for ourselves and for our church. So Paul goes on to tell Timothy to be strengthened. So he says, be strengthened, not strengthen yourself. Uh, there's, a, there's a difference here. Uh, Paul has just finished reminding Timothy of the grace that's in the gospel. And this is a grace that God gave before the ages began. And it's not as a result of works. And it's not something that is removed because of any of Timothy's failures or sins. So that's the beauty here. Even if and we don't know for sure, but even if Timothy hasn't been perfect in fulfilling what he has been called to in Ephesus, Christ's grace is still sufficient for him. Perhaps Timothy, maybe Timothy has done perfectly, and yet he hasn't seen fruit. So maybe he came and he's been incredibly faithful, and he is hoping that people like Hymenaeus and Alexander, after having been turned over to Satan, the goal of church discipline was that they would repent and come back into the church. And so Timothy would have been hoping and praying for these people, would they repent and return to Christ? But it's evident that this hasn't happened yet. And so maybe Timothy's experiencing discouragement, um, but that Paul's reminding him that whatever is happening right now shouldn't shake his confidence in his salvation. Any temptation to give up due to past failures can be swallowed up in the hope of God's acceptance. And so this is wonderful news for us as well, brothers and sisters. God's mercies are new every morning. So perhaps you came in this morning feeling like you had failed God or failed yourself or failed others. But if you are trusting in Christ by faith, I want to encourage you, you are not lost. And so I encourage you, be strengthened by knowing that you do not need to work for your salvation or to keep it. Christ has done it all. And so now you can be free to work for his kingdom and his purposes. And not only this, but God's, uh, Paul says that God has sent his spirit to help us in doing this now. You see that in chapter 1, verse 14. And so this isn't the main point of the passage, but it's incredibly important, and I'm going to keep coming back to it and reminding us of it because it undergirds the rest of what Paul is going to command Timothy. He's going to tell him, get to work. It's going to be hard. But focusing on Christ's grace prevents us 
from thinking too highly of what we do well or thinking too low of what we don't do well. This is something that I continually need and it was something that I needed this week, um, so perhaps you do too. You aren't going to be perfect. You can't do everything, much less do it without sin, but Christ's grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in weakness. God's true teachers have been entrusted with the gospel. And so this demands first strength from Christ and next sowing his word. So let's read verse two again here. Paul says and writes, uh, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So I tried to start to set the table for this earlier, but when, when Paul writes and trusts to faithful men what Timothy has been taught, I don't think that we're meant to forget um, those who demonstrated themselves to be unfaithful. Um, there is immense hope in this letter. I, 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 want, I want us to see there's immense hope here. Uh, let's listen to chapter 4, verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. So he's looking forward to the reward that Christ has for him, which is God himself. But at the same time, this letter is really tinged with melancholy and sorrow. Paul wasn't a fool. He, 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 he knew that not everyone who began well would finish well. But he doesn't know who that's going to be beforehand. Uh, let's hear what he said to the Ephesian elders the last time he saw them in Acts 20, verses 25 through 32. And Paul said to them, so this is just part of it, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified." Um, so we see a couple of beats that are similar here. He's saying, again, God is the one who is able to build you up. Um, but I want to highlight a couple of things. One is he says he's declared to them the whole counsel of God. But also he said there are going to be wolves that come from outside and from within the church. And so he knows that it's going to happen that people who have been invested in within the church are going to turn away and are going to cause dissent, uh, disruption. Um, and it, I don't think that you could say that he's just, he's just saying that and, oh, 
like he, but he doesn't really have that much emotionally invested in them because he said that he admonished them three years with tears. So he, these are people that he loves dearly. Um, so uh, so I, I'm going I'm to come back to this idea, but uh, what Paul is telling him, Timothy here is specifically entrust something. What is Timothy to entrust? So I, I kind of made an assessment of what that was based on the main point here. Um, but lo just looking at the text, uh, Timothy is to entrust what he has heard from Paul in the presence of many witnesses. So Timothy is to entrust to others what Paul has taught publicly. Uh, if we recall what Paul said he taught in Acts 20, he said he declared the whole counsel of God. And so I think it's reasonable to assume this is what Paul did when he went uh, from church to church, is he's teaching the whole counsel of God. He also talks about um, being entrusted with the gospel in chapter 1. And so I think maybe a way of rephrasing this verse that's uh, more clear as to what he's saying is, you have heard me preach publicly God's whole counsel, and specifically the gospel of Christ. As Christ entrusted his word with me, I have entrusted this word to you. Now pass on this treasure to faithful men who will teach others as I have taught you. So just I'm going to make a brief aside. This is why we value expository preaching because it forces us to teach the whole counsel of God. I remember Ken remarking this on this a couple of times because there's things that we might be tempted if we say we're just going to preach on certain things. There's things we might be tempted to skip over. Um, but uh, the, the other thing is we might be tempted to preach only on things where we know them or we skip them because we're like, oh, okay, I know that really well. Um, and I think that that last bit is something we tend to gloss over. If God says something multiple times, it doesn't make it more authoritative, but if he has chosen to repeat himself, it's probably because we're prone to forget him and his benefits. And so expository preaching expresses humility that God knows us better than we know ourselves. So we teach all of what he says, not just what we're comfortable with. So Timothy's task is to preach is not only preaching the whole counsel of God, but doing so with the intent of investing in future teachers of God's word. He's calling Timothy to sow the gospel, so by preaching it, um, cultivate and care for other men, as Paul has cared for Timothy, and to raise them up to be leaders who will do the same. So if you didn't, if you didn't catch it, this might sound very similar to Jesus' words in Matthew 28 where Jesus tells the disciples to teach others to obey all he commanded. Incidentally, that's a command. So he's saying, teach others to obey all that I've commanded. So you're going to tell them to also teach others to obey all that I've commanded. So he's commanding, creating disciples who will create more disciples. Um, and as Pastor Ken has said earlier in the series, the gospel, in a sense, is always a generation from being lost. And Timothy this whole time is competing with false teachers who are trying to invest in others in the same way. So who's he supposed to entrust God's whole counsel and specifically the gospel to? 
It's in entrusting it to faithful men. And so implied in this is Timothy has to determine who the faithful men are that he should invest in. Uh, he can't know who's going to be the, uh, those who are going to persevere all the way to the end. But he can get some indication based on their character, seeing their fruit. So once again, he's entrusting something precious. I think entrust is a word that we don't, we don't toss around flippantly. You don't say, I entrust this french fry to you. Like, you, don't, you, don't, you don't entrust something trivial to someone. You entrust, um, you entrust your child to someone if, uh, you know, maybe you leave them at your parents for the day or you um, entrust your uh, <clears throat> uh, bank account to someone who's managing, or sorry, um, like your finances to someone who's managing that or uh, something that's actually important. Uh, and so what he's interesting is the most precious thing that he could be, God's word about Christ. And so how is he going to determine the faithful people that he should be entrusting this to? I would imagine the criteria he's going to be using is by looking for men based on the qualifications of elders and overseers from Paul's first letter, letter to Timothy. So he's not supposed to go after someone uh, and entrust. The, the point is not those who are able to teach or those who are going to be influential. It's faithful men who are able to teach others also. So he shouldn't go after them just because they're great or because they're charismatic or because they have a lot of influence in the community. Um, if they have those things, that sure, that's, that's fine. But the primary criteria is faithfulness as identified by their fruit from trusting in Christ by faith. And so the application of this very specifically for Timothy is to find and raise up more elders. And so I think this uh, comes back and now it's pointed straight at me and the other elders. Are we doing the same? So I ask uh, Brent and Steve and Paul and Troy, and all the other guys who um, have served in the past. Are we raising up men who will be faithful to teach others? And there are applications, though, for all of us, too, because uh, we've, we've talked about this. First of all, each one of us has uh, someone that we're probably investing in or we could be investing in. That person someday is going to Lord willing, make disciples of someone else. Even if it's just in their own home, maybe you're just training up your children so that they can raise up their children in the same way and entrust the gospel because they will be teaching others. Um, but it doesn't have to be that, even if you don't have kids, there's still perhaps someone you could invest in or someone that you uh, could be uh, getting invested by so that you can do this in the future. Um, and then the other thing is, if you aspire to be an elder, um, are you characterized by faithfulness as Paul would define it? If you aspire, even a long time from now, maybe you're very young, um, I would encourage you to come talk to me or one of our current or uh, uh, former elders about this. Or if you just want to teach God's word and you're interested in leading a small group or a Bible study, um, 
do you think you qualify as faithful? Um, would you say in general that you're someone who's, uh, a, a college pastor would say faithful, available, and teachable? Um, I'm not saying this to like poke people in the eye, I'm just asking us to have introspection here. Um, there are all manner of things that can distract us and pull us off course. And that's what Paul is going to focus this idea on in the next few verses. Um, so I want to move on here. God's true teachers have been entrusted with the gospel. This demands strength from Christ, sowing his word, now suffering and strenuous effort. I'm going to read these verses here again. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have first share of the crops. So for the, just the second time, again, already in this letter, Paul commands Timothy to share in suffering. He called him to do this in chapter 1, verse 8 as well. Um, but this time he attaches a word picture, and he actually attaches a couple of word, word pictures, but the first one is suffering as a soldier. Paul has something to teach Timothy and to teach us through him what it means to serve Christ with each, with each of these three illustrations of soldier, athlete, and farmer. A good soldier persists in fighting even as his friends die. Even if they are injured or if they even flee and abandon the army. Uh, even if his uh, commanding officer makes him work really hard. Uh, he might be taken far from home to fight or be captured as a prisoner of war. And uh, the other thing is that one person abandoning the fight has an impact on all the others on his side. Paul isn't just telling Timothy these things to suck it up. You gotta be a tough guy if you're gonna stick in the army. He's not doing that. <clears throat> He's saying, Timothy, you need to be realistic about what Christ has called you to do. A um, couple months ago, uh, we had a children's sermon, so maybe, maybe the kids will remember this, where uh, Paul Martin said, uh, I have this soldier's jacket, I'm gonna wear it, so I'll be treated well as a soldier. You know, people respect soldiers. And then Troy piped up from the back and he said, you can't just say you're a soldier. You know that soldiers, uh, you, you can't, and, and then just try to get the respect for it. You know, you, you're gonna have to do whatever your commanding officer tells you to do. You're not gonna just get to go home at night. You can't sleep in late. You have to, you have to do all these other things that are involved in being a soldier. And Paul, you know, in the illustration, Paul's like, well, okay, maybe, uh, maybe that's more than I thought. I just wanted the, like, the good stuff. Um, but I think that that's a really helpful illustration for us because um, we need to be realistic about what it means to be a soldier of Christ Jesus. Um, again, Paul has told Timothy that he needs to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And I think it's not trite to say that's really the only way that we're going to persevere in the face of suffering. By reminding yourself of the hope that you have in Jesus Christ dying for your sins and being raised from the dead, 
such that you know you will enjoy eternal blessed life with him. Just trying to squelch the emotions and press on in the face of suffering, it's not going to work. You're going to have to look for something that's going to give you more hope. And the other thing that helps us, I believe, is that your commanding officer, the one who enlisted you by Paul's language, was one who suffered as well. He suffered and was rejected by men, but he took our sins and the sins of all who would believe in him. And he died on the cross that our sins would be removed. He is intimately acquainted with our suffering. In our reading from Colossians, Paul rejoices that he participates in Christ's sufferings because he is doing Christ's work and he's able to look forward to that reward. And so uh, I think we have to ask ourselves, okay, so what, is this, what does this suffering look like? What's, what's Paul talking about here? There's no doubt that he's talking about, on one hand, his own suffering and persecution by the fact that he's in jail and he's awaiting his execution. Uh, and it's not like it's a posh prison that he's in. And he says as much in verse 9. So that's part of his sufferings. He also discusses in the past his own persecutions and beatings when he preached the gospel. But I think if we focus on what we consider just normal, I, I don't mean to trivialize it, but normal persecution, I think we could miss the breadth to which Christians suffer in this world. Um, even in a culture where our views are increasingly seen as bigoted and intolerant, I think much of the suffering we face is much more ordinary. It's a consequence of sin and death tainting our world, but God still intends it for our sanctification. Uh, I know that for myself, I, I tend to be a lot more frustrated with the mundane sufferings of life, uh, but God, God knows what he's doing. <laughs> Um, um, when Paul, though, says that, uh, he, he goes on, he says, soldiers do not get entangled in civilian pursuits. He's telling Timothy to be single-minded in his focus. Paul's going to go on and tell Timothy, don't be distracted and sidetracked by irreverent babble and by quarrelsome people. Perhaps Timothy was neglecting raising up new teachers and entrusting the gospel to others in the intentional, meaningful way that Paul had done with him. Maybe he's getting, instead of, he's, he's debating with a bunch of people, so there's a, there's a place Paul is telling him to stop people who are preaching wrong things, but um, there's enough kind of rebuke of being quarrelsome um, in general that it just makes you wonder if Timothy's getting sidetracked a little bit. Um, but I want to suggest to you today um, that some of the suffering that has come to Paul and Timothy is this sadness and struggle for them to persevere and to keep doing this, not only in light of people who are being quarrelsome, but the fact that dear brothers and sisters have fallen away, especially those they have invested in. Um, when I was in college ministry, our pastor would periodically play a recording of a, a talk or a sermon called Many Aspire, Few Attain. It was by a man named Walt Henriksen, who was a leader in the Navigators College Ministries for a couple decades. 
And I remember the first time I heard it, he was speaking to a group of college students. I'm not sure what the size of the group was. I think it's kind of implied that it's well over 100 people that he's speaking to. And he said something along these lines. In a room this size, less than 10 of you will persevere to the end. Uh, here's a couple, so that, I couldn't find that. I, I found actually a manuscript of his talk, but I, uh, he, I guess he made that remark ad lib. Um, but he, here's a couple sentences from his introduction. It is relatively easy to rec recruit collegians because they are at, at an idealistic age. They have a whole adventuresome life ahead of them. Everything looks like it's filled with opportunity. Collegians hate mediocrity. If there's one thing they want, it's idealism. Idealism expressed in a better way of life. Recruiting the collegian to the spiritual battle is fairly easy, but it's a long uphill climb afterward. And the older a person gets, the more he feels like quitting. <clears throat> Victory is always in the future. It's not just around the corner. The spiritual battle will take the rest of your life. It will consume every ounce of your energy. So I remember hearing this talk and thinking, and I actually thought these things, we're not some namby-pamby college ministry. We take doctrine, discipleship, and the gospel seriously. And I thought to myself, I bet well over half the people in this room will be persevering to the end of their lives. And I want you to understand that I was being prideful here. I was that idealistic college student that he was talking about. My college pastor had been at this for decades and he had good reason for sharing this talk with us. And at this point, I have already seen friends from many friends from college, people I led Bible studies with, roommates who I had deep conversations with, young guys I worked with and others, desert Christ for the cares of the world. Typically, you know, there's not one reason why this has happened, but I would say most commonly, this has started with them moving somewhere else and then not committing to find a local church to be involved in, because it's a lot easier to get caught up in these civilian pursuits than to rub shoulders with sinners, serve and give sacrificially. I know some of you college students have uh, probably endured me saying, like, they're like, you're going off to college, and I say, where are you going to church? Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't care what you're studying. That's not, that's not quite, but like if someone moves away, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, where are you going to go to church? Because uh, that God's people is one of the means by which he keeps us. And uh, I want to say when someone falls away, it's really a gut punch. I have found myself wondering, what did I do or not do? It's hard not to cry out like the psalmist saying, is this all worth it? feel like my friends have fallen away. Uh, it, you know, people scoff and say to me, where, where is your God? And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, I imagine at some point you've probably felt this too. And this is when we need all the more what Paul said at the beginning of this chapter. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You're not going to be able to just pull yourself up by your bootstraps in the midst of mourning and seeing your friends fall in battle. You're not going to be able to save yourself or keep yourself. It is only Christ who died for your sins. It's only by the power of his Holy Spirit that you can put to death indwelling sin. 
It's only God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who is keeping you for the day when Christ returns or calls you home. And so this is what you are going to need when discouragement and suffering abound. This is also what I need to get back on the horse and keep ministering. I don't take for granted those who have persevered in the same way I used to. I understand it is a supernatural work of them being kept by God until the day of Christ Jesus. Praise God for that. I think, I don't think I'm injecting too much of myself into what's going on here with Paul and Timothy. I think that they're feeling a lot of these similar things as they see people falling away. And it's, it's hard to keep fighting the fight and staying in the fight as a soldier of Christ as you see these things happen. So the next illustration Paul uses is he calls Timothy to be like a competing athlete. So an athlete, even in Paul's day, would undergo strict training and compete with the goal of winning. Not just someone sitting along the sidelines, not just simply participating, but winning the prize. And he wouldn't win the prize unless he competed according to the rules. So part of those rules, um, if we're continuing in what Paul's saying, is going to be suffering, persevering. But it also means there aren't shortcuts in the Christian life. All around us, the world might say, the ends justify the means. You'll hear people um, telling, uh, telling noble lies because they think that that is, uh, that is the best way to do what you think is best. Uh, in fact, one time I had someone tell me, who was, he was very bitter with the church, he said, Christians do the same. They believe the ends justify the means. I'd say we as Christians should be the first to say no to that sort of thing. This is just not true. We must compete according to the rules. Shall we sin that grace may abound? By no means. Lastly, Paul calls Timothy to be like a farmer. As a farmer prepared his field each year, he would be constantly watering, weeding, watching, and caring for his crops. But that's if everything went well if storms or insects or war or drought or disease came and damaged or destroyed his crop, that's it. So in other words, this farmer is simultaneously working very hard and also at the mercy of waiting and hoping, praying that his effort would be met with success due to the many factors that are beyond his control. Now, this is definitely true for um, farmers today, but it certainly, a lot harder um, back then. And if you've grown any plants from seeds before, uh, you may notice that there's a lot of time when the seed is in the ground and you have no idea if it is growing. Uh, even after it sprouts, um, it often feels like it is growing very slowly. And it's in this uncertainty and strenuous labor that the farmer works knowing that this is how he's going to provide for his family. It's a long-term effort. It doesn't, always, it doesn't always pay results in the way that he would expect or in the time frame that he would expect. But he knows that it's going to be worth it because of the first share of the crops. And so do we have this kind of patience and trust in the Lord? Uh, when, when ministering with people, when Paul's saying, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others as well, people don't just grow super fast linearly and just keep doing that. Uh, if you have, uh, come talk to me. I would like to know how that's worked for you uh, because it hasn't 
uh, unfortunately, it hasn't worked that way for me. So, um, uh, but the question would be then, uh, do we have this kind of patience and trust? Um, the benefits of effort for Christ may not come quickly, but you can trust that they will. So these are all a number of interlocking illustrations. They're kind of showing us different sides of what it means to uh, serve Christ wholeheartedly, uh, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of difficulty and trials in this world. So each call, be like a soldier, be like an athlete, be like a farmer, is attached with something to look forward to. The soldier of Christ seeks to please his commanding officer, Jesus. The crown the athlete receives is the crown of righteousness from chapter 4, verse 8. It's reigning with Christ, which we'll see in some of the following verses here. Um, I believe the crop referred to in verse 6 to be of people. Christ said the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So we do know that God promises a harvest. And so I ask, do you long to hear these precious words from Christ your commanding officer. Well done, good and faithful servant. And then beyond that, do you long for others to know the same and to hear those same words? Are you content to suffer just a little while compared to the weight of glory that is coming in order to hear these words? Being a soldier, an athlete, or a farmer, none of these are passive pursuits. What this passage doesn't allow for us to do, and it didn't allow for Timothy to do, is just to be passive or a consumer Christian. I'll be frank, you will suffer when serving with, living with, and speaking with sinners. You may suffer as a result of your own sins or of theirs. And again, this is why we need Christ's grace to strengthen us and to remind us to be gracious to one another. This truly frees us to serve as a soldier of Christ with the intent of passing on the gospel. You'd never know what the impact may be of you pouring into another person, how many people that person will impact. Like the farmer, though, you do the work and trust God for the results. God's true teachers have been entrusted with the gospel. This demands strength from Christ, sowing his word, suffering and strenuous effort, and last, serious consideration. Paul concludes this section, and he says, think over what I say. Okay, so think it over. Go back and reread it. Um, I don't think he's saying, when he says the Lord will give you understanding and everything, I don't think he understands, thinks that Timothy can't or doesn't understand the words that he's saying. I believe he's just reminding Timothy he needs to count the cost daily as a Christian. And, we should, and he should consider the implications of following Christ and the suffering that he is called to in order to prepare himself well for suffering. Again, it's not so that he can not react and just say, well, okay. I knew that was going to happen. I'll just move on, because that's not how we work. Instead, the goal is to say, Lord, this is hard. But you promised this would happen, and you would see me through it. 
You said that you are working all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. I knew it. I knew it when I said that I would follow Christ. And I know now to count it all joy when I face trials of many kinds because you are doing a work in me to make me like Christ. So this last verse is very short, but I think the application is very similar to us as it is for Timothy. It's think hard. It's not think hard about Timothy's circumstance. I mean, it's Timothy's circumstances of what his suffering would look like and what his effort would look like for Christ. It's going to be different. And each of ours is going to be different as well. But I, I think there's some questions. Um, so I, I'll ask one that I, I think was worth asking for me. Did I have wrong expectations of what it would mean to pass on the gospel? Um, I think at times I've thought, if I was faithful enough, I wouldn't suffer the heartbreak of people I served and pour, the heartbreak of people that I served and poured into walking away. Um, there's some ways that we um, believe the prosperity gospel uh, in more subtle ways than just saying that we are always going to be healthy and wealthy. I think sometimes um, we, at least for myself, I overestimate my own uh, faithfulness and what that means. So I think this is an opportunity for introspection for all of us. Have we counted the cost? And what are we concentrating our efforts on? Um, do we work hard at our job, but then live lazily as a Christian? Are we taking seriously the charge to entrust the gospel to others with the intent of them also teaching? Is God's word, the words of the very God of the universe, something that you view as a treasure to be passed on? Or is it just one of many interests you have? And you may also be experiencing true suffering in this life. The fact is, we experience a lot of suffering uh, just by being on an earth that is full of sin and decay. Um, but it is not going to mean anything for us apart from Christ. But I want to say emphatically, effort for Christ will not be in vain. You please your father and your brother by being faithful. You will win that prize by competing well and according to the rules. Just like the farmer, the benefits may not come quickly, but you can trust that they will. And so your character and achieving the goal matter. This is going to be a fight for the rest of our lives, but you can trust that God will give you the strength and grace for this task. Doesn't mean that he's going to remove the heartbreak or the emotions, but he is going to see you into his heavenly country. So let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us to soberly consider what it means to follow Christ. I pray that you would fill us with joy in knowing that we are beloved by you because of Christ. When you look upon us, you see Christ and you see that his righteousness is given to us. And so we can persevere in life knowing that no matter what comes our way, whether uh, sin, pain, trials, um, persecution, hatred, all of those things come not uh, because you hate us or you forsake us, but because you are making us like your son. 
I pray that you would convince us further of the truths of the gospel. I pray you would help us to persevere. If there's any in this room today who are, their hope is waning in Christ, I pray that you would give them renewed hope, knowing that this labor is worth it, that one day, if they're faithful, they will, they will hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. I pray that that would be what we look forward to, that would be the crown and the prize that we seek. And I pray that by your spirit, we would have the power to do this. I pray you would strengthen us with the grace that is in Christ, that we might go forward and love you more. I pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen.